All right, guys, y'all show some love to the sponsors of the Straight Out of Prison podcast. Our friend Keely Brown runs her family-owned HVAC Home and Commercial Services. Is your system ready for the summer? Schedule a system checkup or reprogram your thermostat. They offer residential and commercial, at home or at work. They really do what they say, and they say what they do. Our family serving your family has been their core value since day one. Their founder and owner, Mr. Robert Holland, made sure the foundation of Home and Commercial Services was and is integrity. Now, remember, Haley, we, we catered an event last December where he was a part of the group that we were feeding. But it was interesting to learn that when he was a young man, when he first started in the HVAC business, Mr. Holland actually got in trouble with, for not adding new parts that the people didn't need. And they were like, why didn't you sell the parts? And he was like, because I could fix them. And they were like, no, no, you're... you're you're doing it wrong. Like you just got to put new parts. And he was like, but they didn't need new parts. And it bugged him so much that he went out and started his own business. And that's the foundation of home and commercial services. And we can attest to that personally. I mean, they've done so much stuff for us. It's crazy. I love that story. And I think it speaks to obviously his integrity and what he's built his business on that integrity. Right now, the most economical service they offer is their annual residential service agreement. For $150, you'll get two annual checkups, and that's for one system. If if it's an additional system, it's 25% off. Anyways, the annual contract includes priority service, normal rates for after-hour service, 10% discount on any repairs, and a 5% discount on any new installations. It's a good deal especially with the heat of the summer coming. Home and Commercial Services works on all name brands of heating and air conditioning units, gas furnaces, heat pumps, walk-in coolers, and smart thermostats. No job is too big or too small. Call or text Keely at 205-798-0635. Or you can email at office at Holland hcs.com you can look up holland home and commercial services on instagram for daily tips and more or you can check out their website hollandhcs.com we have some amazing friends and supporters of the podcast Lynn and Debbie Hurst, who own Hurst Towing and Recovery in Fultondale and Hayden, Alabama. They serve the Jefferson, Blunt, and surrounding counties. They tow light and heavy-duty vehicles, and they're always there to help. We wouldn't call anybody else. We would never call anybody else, and that's a fact. Would you like to work for an amazing company that treats their employees like family? The Hearst are hiring. Full and part-time positions. Give them a call today. Hearst Towing is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They've been in our area since January of 1987. They have a heart to serve and they love making an impact in the communities they grew up in. The Hearst definitely make a difference in our world. And they have definitely made a difference in our lives. Dispatchers are always ready to receive calls at 205-631-8697. That is 205-631-TOWS, T-O-W-S. <laughs> you, get, you get me every time I, with the toes. <laughs> <laughs> or check out their website at hearsttowing.com. Now, y'all know James from the podcast, but he also is an amazing cook and private chef. I can attest to that personally. I've had many years of experience in food, just working in, managing, and even owning a couple restaurants. One of his greatest passions is preparing delicious food. You know, if somebody's going through something or through a hard time and you don't know what to do, you can always cook for them. Or you can always call me and I'll cook for them. It's, it really, it's a it's a great way to love people. That journey started early in his beloved granny's kitchen. She was the one that, you know, was always cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She was a Southern belle. She made everything taste good, and I didn't always, sorry, Mom, get that at home. <laughs> but uh, granny taught me how to cook, and 
I've never looked back from that. James is a Fox 6 Good Day Alabama monthly contributor. It's one of the honors of my life. I love cooking on TV. I love hearing the feedback. I love going in there and having people email me and ask questions. It's just, it's fun. And his peanut butter cobbler recipe was featured on the Food Network show Carnival Eats. That was kind of a big deal. I mean, it was... uh, I don't like I got paid for it, but it was a lot of exposure and it was really fun. Head over to ChefJamesKJones.com to join our email list. Once you do that, you can stay updated on everything that we're doing. CrossFit Mophobia is owned and operated by Hayden Setzer. Hayden has a degree in exercise science and wellness with a minor in coaching. She is CrossFit Level 2 certified and Precision Nutrition Certified. CrossFit Mophobia is located at 222 Decatur Highway in Gardendale, Alabama. Email CrossFitMophobiaInfo at gmail.com or call or text 256-303-1873. Or you can look up everything she does on Facebook and Instagram. CrossFit Mophobia. Well, hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Straight Out of Prison podcast. This is season two, episode 12. I'm James K. Jones, and this is my story. And this is Haley Jones, and this is his story that has now become a part of my story. So, this is going to be the final installment of season two, I guess would be the season finale or whatever you would call it. But this was a definite, definite end to a definite season in my life because these were my final days in prison. Yeah, um, I would say the most life changing season in your life. Yeah, I mean, the whole. You know, at this point, I've been, you know, it was like three and a half years in of, I mean, I was almost seven years in total, but it been three and a half years in, you know, trying to do something different, understanding, you know, how I got there, how how my life could be different going forward, and just the work that that Jesus did in my life, especially the last year or so that I was here. It was just, it was an amazing time. But, I mean, there was some fears, a little, uh, you know, there were parts of it that were scary. Remember in the last episode, we called it Falling Apart. Yeah. And I talked about learning about this thing about writing a vision. Like, Yes. Well, the vision that I wrote down was, you know, what I felt like he told me to write down was you're going to be whole and you're not, you're going to basically deal with all your mess. Right. It wasn't what you wanted to write down. <laughs> yeah. I would not have chose yeah. that. But, um. By the end of that, the end of getting close to the end of 1999, like it just occurred to me, like going through counseling, dealing with the stuff, doing all the Joyce Meyer stuff, was that that vision had come to pass. Like I was a different man than I was when I wrote that down, and I would have never saw that coming. So that gave me hope. So how long, from the time that you wrote it down to the time you kind of had that realization, how long was that? Probably about eight months. Okay. I mean, that was a hard period. And, you know, we can, if you want to listen to the last episode, you can, we can, you can like get into the nuts and bolts of that. But it was a hard, you know, going through counseling hard, dealing with issues is hard. It's just, um, but it was so worth it. Like it was like, there was so much freedom on the other side. And it wasn't freedom from my circumstances because I was still in the same place, but I was free, like of a lot of the things that had always been my stuff. Right. But I'm getting ready. I've got a parole date. It is... uh, You got a parole date. (laughs) It was exciting and scary because if you remember me telling you, most people don't make it up the first time. Mm -hmm. It's like common knowledge. Like they give you a parole date. You go up, you go to your hearing, you don't make it the first time, and then you 
Usually if you're going to make it, you make it the second or third time. Do you remember what the date was? I'm just curious. It was know. September. It was the first week of September in 1999. Okay. I, can, I can look up the date, but yeah. I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact date. But there was a fallout that happened. Remember I told you about Chris. You know, he got out at the end of 98. Right. Your bestie. Yeah. And and we <laughs> stayed in touch. And I love Chris. I mean, I still love him to this day. Like he mm-hmm. was, he was, he was my, he was my best friend. Yeah. But he got out and he kind of took the path steps that I wanted to take. So he made parole. Uh, he went to a halfway house in Birmingham. He went to the church that I had connected with and was going to join. And he had all the, remember I told you Chris was like uh, Tom Cruise or Zach Efron or somebody, you know, <laughs> he was, no, he was just, he was a charmer and not, yeah. not in a negative, like he wasn't like, just people love Chris. They want to help him, especially like you learn a story, you know, mm-hmm. he was basically, he was unmothered. His dad was, you know, took him all over the world, been in prison since he was 17, you know, just he'd had a hard life and people want to help him. And then, you know, you mix that in with, he had an experience with Jesus and he, he you know, it was just, he was I was jealous of him, but I loved him too. Right. That makes sense. But what ended up happening, he got out and, you know, he started going around the churches and telling his testimony. And, you know, uh, he was on he the was radio. He was the prison poster child. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And But he liked stuff like that. Like yeah. He, he was in, like, that was his dream was to get out and go do testimonies and take up offerings and be a blessing and teach and do all these things that he wanted to do. But... He understood the scriptures. He understood Jesus like he had a definite, like, I don't doubt anything about that. But he didn't ever, like, really deal with some of his character flaws. And around, I guess around the beginning of 99, all the stuff that he was doing kind of started falling apart. And that um, it affected us negatively because he was, like, the first one out of the honor dorm. To leave. Oh, he was representing. Yes, he was, and but he was also connected to all the volunteers that were coming in to help us. All of them. They, he was right there in Birmingham. You know, I talked to him three or four times a week on the phone. He was sending me pictures. You know. So when you say things started falling apart, what did that look like for him? Well, he got out, and one of the volunteers—I can't even remember this guy's name. I wasn't super connected to him, but one of the volunteers was just head over heels. For Chris, like he wanted to help him. And he was, uh, he lived like in Mountain Brook. So he had, you know, a lot of resources, a lot of influence, a lot of things going on. So Mountain Brook, for those of you that are not in our area or Alabama, is just kind of a. It's the rich part of town. Yeah. it's yeah. A, And it's old money. What do you so, call it? What's the right way to say it? The higher economic. Yeah. It's the. Something. <laughs> I don't know how you well, say it. But. The real estate in Mountain Brook is the highest in the state of Alabama. Yeah. I mean, it's. Actually, I've, I've heard, I mean, this is random, but yeah. like it's the third richest in the country as far as it may income be. or something like but that. But it's. They, they, most of the people in Mountain Brook have old money. You like, get the idea, though. They come yeah. from like trust funds and they, you know. Right, right. But this guy got him a job working at a golf course doing something. I forget what he was doing exactly. Uh, bought him a car, but made him pay the note on it, like signed for him, all stuff. Bought him a car. Um, he went to Shepherd's Fold, which is a halfway house. Um, he went to the church that I was a part of, that I was going to. And then things started falling apart when he stopped showing up for work. And then the guy was getting kickback from the people that gave him the job. And then he wasn't making his car payment, so then he defaulted on the on the loan. And so this guy, this guy kind of got jaded. And you could tell, like, he still came in prison. He's still trying to help us with the honor dorm. But he, uh, 
He didn't trust us anymore. Well, I don't blame. I mean, yeah, that's aggravating. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of it is just like Chris, he was not out to get people, but he didn't understand like things like finances or changing your oil. I think what happened was he didn't get his oil changed and the oil burned up the motor and then the car didn't work. So he was like, I'm not paying for it if it don't work. But the guy was like, hold up. I sign, if you don't pay, I got to pay. And so it was just, it was a big mess. Yeah. And then that happened and there was a lot of problems with the Shepherd's Fold because Shepherd's Fold was a halfway house that was a Christian ministry. And Chris, you know, he felt like he knew everything and nobody needed to tell him, you know, nobody going to tell him nothing. So he had a lot of issues with that. So there was a lot of conflict with that. And that guy that ran that was coming in teaching classes. So we would get that feedback. But then probably the worst thing that happened, the church, uh, the World Victory Church, it was a small church. There was like 100 people. But it was a new church plant upstart, and it was Mm -hmm. like young people, stuff happening. Well, he went out on a date with the organist, the worship leader lady. Uh, (laughs) um, That's one and the same, the organist and the worship leader lady? Well, she played an organ. That's (laughs) all I know. I never met her. I don't (laughs) know. But apparently, on their first date, they went back to her house, and she played with his organ. And then James! (laughs) Gosh! uh, No, but it was a big, it was a big... It was a big scandal, a big mess, and then so all this stuff started up, and the the pastor there ended up having to confront all that, and when he did, the church split, and then the lady left mad in a huff, and he just left behind a little tornado of a mess, <laughs> and then... Sounds like he set little fires everywhere he, he went. He didn't do it on purpose. It no, just, I know, but... He, he, he didn't know what he was getting into, but he did. It was like little tornadoes everywhere he went, and then he ended up... Going down to uh, Baymanet, where he's from, and had a hookup with some girl, and she got pregnant, so he ended up having to get married, and now he's got a baby coming, and she already had two kids, and so it was just, he was a mess. Chris was a mess. It sounds like a lot of lack of, like, practical life skills. And he didn't have that. Nobody yeah. ever taught him that. He didn't know. He didn't have a work ethic. I mean, he didn't, I mean, he was, he would work hard, but he didn't understand, you know, he didn't have... He didn't have a role model. He didn't have any teaching on that. Right. But that actually helped us with the honor dorm because we immediately went into, like, strategy mode with we're going, we're only going to do half the the Jesus stuff. Like, the other half is going to have to be life skills and, you know, how to, you know, if you're going to get out and go to work, get up now. Don't sleep all day. And, you know, so we started, we implemented a lot of that. It actually made our program better. But I got into a place where I was determined, like, I'm, he's already messed this up for everybody and anyways, I'm not going to be trying to suck up to people. I'm not going to ask these people to help me with the pro board or any of that stuff. I made up my mind. I'm just, I'm just going to trust Jesus and ask him to help me. And Because that was kind of a game in there. You needed people to go to the pro board for right, you. Right. You explained that a little bit last time. I didn't know how, what a big deal it was oh, it for someone is. to do that for you. It still is. Yeah. But what ended up happening during the process, I got my, I got my pro date. I was nervous about it, and I was still doing counseling. So Steve was like... You got. You have to have a plan, and if you have a plan, and if we can submit the plan to the pro board, and we can answer every question that they have, then they'll probably grant you. Why won't they keep you locked up if you've got a plan? And so, I was like, I feel like that's you're like simplifying things a little bit too much, but uh, it, it really was. It was a game changer for me because he didn't just like make up a plan. He sat down with me through counseling and through like. You know, we got to figure out how you got here. The, the, he called them giants that I would face when I get out. Mm-hmm. Because whatever I was dealing with before when I got out, there was the same things were still going to be there. Give me an example of a giant. 
drugs, okay, yeah. criminal activity, and for me, it was my my hometown. Mm-hmm. Like he, Steve was a pastor and he did prison ministry, but he went to school for criminal justice. Okay, so he had worked with UAB for years, and he he'd been doing this his whole life. He's been this was 1998. He started going in prisons in 1978. So that was like when I was. First grade. Okay. Um, so he had a lot of wisdom, a lot of uh, a lot of practical. Like most of his stuff was all practical. Mm-hmm. But he said that most guys, their parole plan is to go home with mom and them. <laughs> and he said going with mom and them ain't a good plan to have. <laughs> Number one, if you go back to the same environment that you came out of, you might be changed and things might be different. But if you don't change your environment, then eventually you'll go back to doing the same things that you did before. And that hurt my feelings because I was like, I want to go home. I want to be my mom or my granny, you know, somewhere. And it bothered me, but he started showing me, like, statistics. Like, he had, like, real data on that, and it's true. And I've given that advice over the past 20 years. You know, go somewhere, start over somewhere else. And usually the guys that do make it and the guys that say they can handle it don't. Mm-hmm. And it's just a crazy, crazy thing, but it was hard, um, hard to accept that, but... So that was one of my things. I had to but, some- but you did, like, take his advice and kind of accept that to, okay, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go somewhere I different. was trying to, I knew that I needed to and I wanted to, but I knew if it was up to me, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I need to be with my family. Right. You know, it don't matter if it's. Which is a natural thing to think, I think. Yeah. I mean, and I wanted to go to, honestly, I wanted to be in Atlanta with my granny. Like, it was my plan when I thought I was getting out in Florida. You know, that was where I wanted to be. But uh, he talked me into not trying to figure out, like, this long-term plan, but let's just do a one-year plan. First six months be very intense. Second six months not quite as intense. And then I'm not going anywhere. Come back to me. We can make a plan for the next year or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I kind of settled into that, and his plan just kind of like I needed – you know, I needed somewhere to live. I needed a, a job. I needed, you know, uh, people that would to be accountable, like with substance abuse stuff, criminal thinking, counseling, uh, you know, spiritual community. And I had the church that I'd, you know, become a part of, the World Victory Church. And I had felt like when I was in lockup that Jesus said, you're going to move to Birmingham. You're going to be my man in Birmingham. And I was, you know, at that time, like, Birmingham ain't nothing that I want <laughs> And Bur- I don't like Birmingham. There's nothing, nothing <laughs> Birmingham for me. But what ended up happening, Joe Brumbach, who ran one of the best halfway houses in the state, Shepherd's Fold, at the time, I wouldn't say that now, but at the time, because Joe resigned, he retired four yeah. or five years ago. And so it's, it's, it's not quite as what it was then. But it was the one that everybody wanted to get in because if you got accepted to Shepherd's Fold, it was almost a guarantee that the parole board would grant you parole. So... Was it required someone coming out of prison that has to go to some kind of halfway house like that? It's not required, but if you want to make parole, if you can give them a plan and you say you're going to a halfway house, they are like 80, 90% more likely to grant you parole because... Why is that? Well, this specific program, Shepherd's Fold, he had a very good track record. Okay. He didn't just house people and, you know, make them pay rent. He had a program, and it was uh, intense, and there was accountability, and, you know, there's all these things. And he had, like, a, I think the recidivism rate then was, like, 
75%. I mean, you can fact check me later, but he had like a, like an 89% success rate with people that oh, came, wow. came in, completed his program and then went on. Like he, he was. And didn't go back to prison. Yeah. He had yeah. a good, and they knew it and they, they trusted him. And if he accepted you, then it was a big deal. Right. And I met him. He came in, was teaching classes, but he was kind of like one of those guys kind of, um, uh, just hard to talk to, he was, you know, he was not very assertive and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I didn't really like, we didn't like me. I didn't like mingle with him too well. I'm not saying I didn't like him. I lo- I liked what he was doing with us and the honor. He was teaching classes, but I also have found that he was jaded by what happened with Chris oh, because, yeah. you know, Chris embarrassed everybody, yeah. especially the free will people that believed in him. But he also didn't like to take people who had already had like a real experience with Jesus because he saw his halfway house as trying to get people, you know, into, into, into an experience with Jesus. That was the main right. thing. And there was a lot of practical stuff that went on with that. So I had that and I didn't, I didn't talk to him. He actually came to me after class one day and he said, Steve told me that you had a uh, parole hearing. And I said, yeah, in uh, September, this was like four months before. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I use, I don't like taking people that have already, you know, that are already following Jesus, but I think you would fit in well, you know, at Shepherd's Fold, what do you think about coming there? And so I was like, um, I think that might be what I'm looking for. And he said, well, when I come in next week, I'll bring an application and we'll talk, you know, like the practical steps and all that stuff. So all the other guys, they were like, what? Like, because it was hard to get, he only had like 30 spots. Oh, okay. And it was like one of those things that you, you get in, and if they're full, you don't get in. Like, Right. The timing is important. Yeah. Because if they just happen to be full when you're. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. all that stuff. So he came back in, we had a meeting. He asked me a bunch of questions, filled out an application. And he said, of course, I'll go to the parole board for you. <laughs> so I was like, I'd never asked him. I did not ask him. He said, of course, if I'm going to accept you, and I'll go to the pro board for you, I'll, I'll talk for you. And so I was just like, wow, this is like God is just working everything out without me even having to try. Yeah. And then I think it might have been two weeks after that, there's a guy, his name is Dennis Devane. He is a big, uh, works with Prison Fellowship. Um, he's from Birmingham, but he is retired don't have to worry about income, put it that way. And his heart is for men in prison. And he spends, you know, five or six days a week or maybe not six days. Maybe He's in prison a lot. You know, he's in there doing his thing. But his main thing that he feels like his purpose was to help guys come out of prison. So he would go to the parole board for people, but only if he believed in them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And... I didn't know him. I, I he went to pro board for Chris, and him and Chris had a like some kind of relationship. But I felt like I didn't know him. Like we, I didn't conversate with him. He wasn't really helping us with the honor dorm, so I didn't have I didn't have a connection to him. I wasn't going to ask him. Right. He came in one day about two or three weeks after that, and he said, "James, I heard you have a a, a parole date." And I said, "Yes, in September." He said. Well, Joel said that you were coming to Shepherd's Fold, and I said, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm working with Steve on a plan, but I think that may be what I need to do. And he said, well, come sit down with me. I want to talk to you. I'm, I'm thinking about, I'd like to go to the parole board for you. And I was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, I didn't even try. Like, I never, I didn't even try. And he sat down, and he was the guy that had, he had more influence with the parole board than Joel Brimbach. Why is that? Because he would help people get out of prison. 
Like there are people that go to the pro board even now that people have made are making like a living off that because they make their family pay them a fee or something, which is oh wait, like someone will go to parole board for someone, but they were getting paid for it. Yeah, like they get a fee. You oh. know, I'll go to parole board for you, but you know it's gonna it's gonna be three hundred or something. You know, something like that. These were not those kind of guys. Yeah, this guy when he went to the parole board for somebody. He didn't just go and help them get out of prison. He was there when they got out, and he helped them rebuild their life. Mm. And so that was humbling, and I was amazed, I guess, um, that all these people were coming to me. I wasn't coming to them. They were seeking me out. Yeah. And um, But he had so much influence with the pro board was because he produced results. Right. Like the people he helped get out stayed out. Yeah. And then— and you know the prison fellowship, prison ministry. It's a good one. It's I mean it's it's Jesus based, Christ centered, but it's all practical. You know, mm-hmm. you got to do what you got to do, figure it out. But he, when I sat down with him, he looked at me and asked me. He said, "So James, are you a good Christian?" <laughs> so I was like, "You think I'm going to say no? I mean, you're, you're trying. Why don't you ask somebody? <laughs> Let's else? define good Christian." Well, no, I was just saying, don't ask me because you know I'm going to tell you I'm wonderful. If you're going to go to the parole board, ask some ask some of my friends, ask people that live with me. So yeah. they say, and he did. But he ended up going. He signed up, got on there, and then Tommy Thomas was one of the associate pastors at the World Victory Church. They started coming in, and he became like a father figure. But it was like with practical stuff like he just wanted to help like he was so excited when he found out i was moving to birmingham and then they found out you know i'd be going to their church and i would be living in at shepherd's fold Mm then he like asked if he could help and i was like okay like help with what um but he was like practical stuff like he started looking for me a job he started you know, stocking up stuff that I might need when I got out. You know, he got with my mom and my wow. Sue, lined up a, my car and, all, you know, all the things. You know, after I got out, he helped me with a bank account and driver's license. They bought me clothes. Gosh, these are all things I don't really, like, think about, you know, like every little bank account, driver's license. Well, you don't clothes. have anything. You have, you're completely yeah. starting from scratch. And it's not like... It's not like being 18 years old and starting. You're starting from scratch, but with the deficit because you're right. now you're a convicted felon and you got all these other things that are going on. So he was a big part of that. And then somewhere during that process, my mom fell and cracked uh, part of her spine. Ooh. And she uh, ended up having to retire and she couldn't work. And it was just, she was in a bad, just in a bad place. And then... During that process, she gained a little bit of weight. I know we've talked about this, but my mom was always, like, thin, little. But she gained a little bit of weight, and then she hated her self-image, so she didn't want to come out of the house. Like, she didn't want to leave the house. It was weird. So in that process, Tommy was going to be the one that would pick me up and take me to Shepherd's Fold and do all the things. And then I had Marvin Carnes, who was my Kairos guy that I met, and he was, like, a mentor to me, but he was real. And he believed in me, but he didn't believe in me, like, with the Ooty Booties. He... He was like, you got to man up and figure it out. Like, he was very challenging to me. He was a big part of that. And then Jimmy Dunn and Walter, I can't remember Walter's last name, but Terry Bush was in the honor dorm with us. He was he was a chapel worker, one of my good friends. An he, inmate. An right? inmate, yeah. yeah. And he was Catholic. And there wasn't a lot of Catholic stuff happening in Donaldson, in any of the Alabama. Like they had like, I don't even think they had a Catholic service. Like they mm-hmm. would come in. So these two guys came out and did a small group with anybody that wanted to be Catholic on Wednesday mornings. And I didn't like Catholics because I thought they were religious. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, 
I ain't into none of that, you know, that religion stuff. And You've mentioned that. Yeah. But <laughs> at the time, Terry wanted me to come out and meet them. And so I went out and sat down at the table with them, and I was going to tell them about Jesus and the Bible and the scriptures and all things. And they uh, totally flipped my lid on what I thought about Catholics because they were, you know, we got we had these two or three times we did these little debates, and then Jimmy just looked at me and said, James, you're more Catholic than most Catholics I know. <laughs> <laughs> but they became like my people. They were like my, you know, I got, got to where that was, you know, I saw them once a week. And then they signed up to be on my parole plan, and you know, Jimmy would help me with like practical stuff. And then Walter was a recovering addict, but he was also a deacon in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So he signed up to be like my uh, person that I would touch base with once a week about, you know, is everything okay? You know, basically the plan that Steve put together was all about people. So I had him as my mentor or my counselor. I had Joel as like my person where I lived. I had Dennis Devane to keep me accountable to doing what I said I was going to do. I had Tommy Thomas that helped me with practical, just everyday life stuff. You know, I saw him four or five times a week. I had Marvin Carnes that was like a, my mentor. You know, he was a successful businessman. I wanted to learn from him. And then I had Jimmy, who was just became like one of my best friends, you know. Uh, and then Walter would uh, call me once a week and just ask me, you know, you had any temptation, any problems? And I would you know, be honest. And that was, I believe that was the biggest part of what helped me be successful was the plan. It was a strategy. We'll be right back. Head over to our YouTube channel for recipes, podcasts, and now we're even live streaming stuff to give you guys real glimpses into our daily lives. Yikes. You'll also be able to see the podcast behind the scenes and unedited live streams. We've added the first five seasons of the Straight Out of Prison podcast, and even if you've listened to all of them, check out the video format to see pictures, behind the scenes, and a whole lot more. And while you're there, please hit the subscribe button. It won't cost you anything, but it does help us reach our goals to reach a larger audience. Look up Chef James K. Jones on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss a recipe or a podcast. For exclusive content, download the Patreon app and look up Team Jones Media. You'll find many levels of subscriptions, but all levels have one feature. You'll get early access to all of our podcast platforms, and they're completely free from ads. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys for all your support, all your encouragement, and thank you for being a part of our story. Right. So really quick, I'm just, I don't want to too long talk about this, but Chris, when mm-hmm. he got out, did he have a plan like this? No. Okay. He was going to get out and go in the ministry. He was going to do Chris. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he was all about Jesus. It was just, he didn't have a lot of... Uh, Accountability, this plan of people that you talk about. Well, people were dazzled by him. He was like a superstar. So people were giving him money, giving him cars, giving him things, giving him... And when you don't have to work for something, you know, eventually you stop trying. That's true for people. Anybody. Yeah, anybody. But they treated him like he was like the um, American Idol. 
and you know he's a human just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. He just had he had an experience that was good, but there was one thing uh, that was holding me back on that. Um, I still had the Shelby County case that was holding me back. And wait, why was that holding you back? Because it hadn't been resolved yet. And okay. if I went up for parole and I still had an outstanding, they're not going to parole me to go to county jail. So oh, I'm figure that out. So uh, my mom scraped together five thousand dollars to hire me a lawyer. And it's crazy how when you have a public defender, something can go on for seven years. But when you have a real lawyer that you pay some money to, how quickly things can get resolved. <laughs> and Gil and Randy had told me, don't be trying to get no Christian lawyer. Get a, Randy said, you need a tenacious bulldog. <laughs> don't get a Christian lawyer. Um, you need somebody that's gonna, that knows the law and is going to fight for you and handle business. And when we got, I think we gave him, she had to give him $5,000. We went in the courtroom. And they were going to give me five years. And I said, no, no, I'm going up for parole. I have to have this. I can't make parole unless this is resolved. And so he was like, hold up, just sit here for a second. He went up there, talked for a minute, talked to the DA, came back, and he said, how about five years with time served and 10 years probation and some fines? And I was like, uh, sign me up. So five years <laughs> with time served, meaning you'd already served that I'm time? I'm done. Okay, yeah. yeah. And then there was also a problem with the pro board that we got to finally tell the pro board, like the judge's orders here, and Steve copied all that stuff and sent it in with my plan. The judge gave him four years time served that the Department of Corrections didn't give him. So that that helped me too. When you know, So everything was looking good. And then I was just, there was like this amazement part of my brain, you know, like, so I was in a year before that, I'd been like in the worst place that I could ever find myself and lock up in the most violent prison in Alabama. And that morning when God said, I need you to be here, I got a plan. And you're going, you're going to get out of here and you're going to be my man in Birmingham. And just how that confused me, like, I don't want to, you know, I want to be in Birmingham, but I'm supposed to move to Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't make any of it happen. It was like God made it happen. I didn't do anything. I mean, it was just like, a total gift. I didn't have to work for it. I'm trying to figure it out. I have to do that stuff. So it was, it was a crazy time. But then, but at the same time, I started worrying. Like I'm gonna mess up something. Like if this is like if Jesus is doing this for me, and I believe that He is, I gotta figure out how to be perfect so I don't mess anything up. Because I can, you know, because I can mess up some stuff. I know, I know me. <laughs> like even to this day, I don't have a problem trusting Jesus. I have a problem trusting myself. Like I don't want to make a mistake and mess things up. But during that time, I felt like He taught me, like if you believe in me and if you know that I've got a plan for you and if I'm working these things out, then you've just got to trust me every day. So mm-hmm. uh, the first day, the challenge was, why don't we just go through the rest of this week and not worry about it? <laughs> and that was what I, I mean. It's in my journal. Like that's what I. Like, why don't you just spend the next seven days just not worrying about it? Just relax and keep doing what you... Because I was still busy. We had a lot of work. We're still, you know, the honor norm was booming. It's hard to relax, though, when you have Uh, something that huge on the horizon and, like, so many pieces and And the ways that it could go wrong, you know, and just all the things. But it was during that time that, that I felt like the Lord really taught me, like, about His grace and, you know, how to just give up. And let him do what he's going to do. And I, you know, that seven days turned into the next seven days. And then I'm like, I, I really would like to live the rest of my life like this. And I'd like to say I have. I haven't. But 
I mean, I, I try to get back there as much as possible. Well, it's kind of like you had done the work, what you felt like going back to the vision that you wrote down. It wasn't what you wanted to write down, but just as far as like dealing with those issues and facing those and being honest about those and those that eight-month period you said that you you had done what you felt like you were supposed to do and then it was just resting yeah. in that. I mean, I'm using the word resting very, like, that's a it's, lot easier said than done. It, it's hard because you feel like you got you to gotta be doing something. And I, I came to a place where I just need to keep doing what I've been doing and if I don't make parole, I'll make it next time. I want to make parole. I believe I'll make parole. But I, I got to a place of just I, I ended up having uh, peace with it. And then all these people were coming on board. And then when the day of the hearing started approaching, like, you don't get to go. Like, I didn't get to go. You don't even get to know until after it's over what even happened. But it just, like, boggled my mind. Like, Chris had two or three people that went for him. I had, like, nine people that went for me. Wow. Well, my Aunt Sue, and there were other people that came. Yeah. And then um, Steve didn't go to the parole board because he felt like if he went for one, he'd have to go for all. Mm -hmm. So he didn't do that. That was, like, his his standard. You know, if I go for James, then I'm going to have to go for everybody. But you had plenty of people anyway, so. Yeah, but he made the plan, and he signed off on the plan. And he, he was pretty heavy in the criminal justice system because he had worked for UAB TAS for all those years and, you know, they knew his name. They knew yeah. him and he was... Uh, Remind me what UAB TASC is again. They keep changing it. I think it, then it stood for Treatment Alternatives Against Street Crimes. But it's okay. like basically he would help people with uh, diversion plans where they didn't have to go to prison. Like they committed oh, crimes. Okay. Like if they would go through his process and, you know, counseling, all things. And he did a lot of work with uh, trying to uh, bring peace between victims of crime and the criminals that committed the crime. Oh, okay. Now he, I mean, he did great work, but he was well-known. So his name, just just him signing his name to my pro plan was a big deal. Right. But then with all the people that went with him, it was, it was almost like, you know, like the national championship game of 2013 <laughs> when the Alabama Crimson Tide was playing Notre Dame. Like, this is going to be a boring game because we know we're going to win. Uh. <laughs> anyway, uh. well it was a boring game uh but it was i was like stacked and set and you know i'm i'm, I'm this is how can this go wrong but you know your mind starts yeah doing all just, the things yeah. but then the day of the hearing that was a very long day because you don't hear you don't know it's not like you have a cell phone and can find out but there was you know the anticipation the fear uh just I want this day to be over with, like I want to know. And then I called Tommy that night. He had given me a time that he would be home. Because in those days, if you call from a prison phone, you couldn't call a cell phone. Mm-hmm. You could only call a landline. I think it's different now. But uh, just getting on the phone with him that night, my heart's pounding. And uh, he uh, answered the phone and just busted out in tears. And he said, you made it. <laughs> like, you made it. going <laughs> I don't know, like, they're really going to let me go. Like, it's crazy. But, I mean, at that time, it had been six years and nine months and some days. So it was almost seven years. And just everything that I had been through, it was just such a, like a... Like, surreal. flood. Just a relief. Like, my God. Like, this Jesus thing. (laughs) Like, I don't get no credit for nothing because I didn't do anything. Like, I didn't make any of this stuff happen. But then immediately, you know, there's 96 men that were in the honor dorm. And when I got off the phone and just 
shouted that. They were all like so just genuinely happy for me. Like it was just like it was crazy. It was a crazy, crazy, crazy day. And that was uh, I believe it was a Monday. And the next day, you did they just erupt in applause? Oh yeah, it was crazy. It was good. It was good. I mean, and this was because we were all like working toward that common goal ourselves. And Mm -hmm. you know, people were coming up to me and saying, you know, James, please don't mess, don't be like Chris, don't mess it up. Like you're representing us. Like we can, we can get it right. And you know, we'll be next. And you know, all the things. But uh, the very next day, it was like, now wait. Because the yeah, week, I remember you saying you never know how long it's going to be. We don't like in Florida. I had an EOS date, so my EOS date was July the first, nineteen ninety six. So I knew that when I got to that day, they were going to let me go, mm-hmm. even though they let me go to another state. <laughs> they let you go to another. Person. <laughs> but you know, like you know, like you have it's, it's settled. That's my EOS date. But with parole, and if you had an EOS date in Alabama, it would be the same, right? But my EOS date in Alabama was like, what was that, 2006, I think, mm-hmm. would have been my EOS date. When you make parole, it's up to them. Like, they do however they figure it out, however they do all the things. And they let people out on parole on Mondays. So Chris made parole and was so excited, but then he was there for months and months and months. Right. So every Monday, it was like this... Oh, I remember you talking about Sunday that. night praying, like maybe this is the last night I see you, and then the next day Monday he's like, no, we got seven more days. <laughs> so that part was hard because it's like, okay, now I got to hurry up and wait. Like I know I've made parole. I have to hurry up and wait. <laughs> hurry up and wait. Just wait. And I just had a clear like knowing that I didn't need to get wrapped up in that and start worrying about that or trying to, because you can't control it. There's nothing you can do right. about it. And I felt like I was just supposed to just keep what I was, keep doing what I was doing. And so I did. I was still working with the guys, still teaching classes, still doing all the things. But uh, I had a goal of, Joyce Meyer had sent in all her stuff, and she was very, her stuff was very practical stuff that she put in there. Well, it was over a thousand hours of teaching. Yeah, you had said that. And we had all that stuff for like a year and a half up to that time. But my goal was I wanted to finish every one of her things before I left. Mm. I mean, that was my, it was a goal. It looked like a goal. It wasn't ever going to happen. But, you know, you just do one after the other. Right. You get there. So I kept doing what I was doing. We kept working. We're doing a thing in the honor dorm. I got to the last one of her study things. It was called Managing Your Emotions. And it was like a six-part thing. And I'd started it. And the way she did like she would have syllabuses and stuff that went with it. It was like, it wasn't like preaching, like going to church. This was like training. Mm-hmm. Like training you how to deal with your issues and, you know, how to like practically follow Jesus, how to be successful in life. And it good, just good stuff. But it was on managing your emotions. And on Sunday, September the 12th, 1999, Sitting at the little prison table in the honor dorm, I finished my last one in my notebook. And I was like, wow. I mean, that was a pretty lofty, like, goal. So this was six days after so I knew So you finished 1,000 hours. On Sunday, September the 12th, nineteen I finished. Like, and this was a huge goal. Wait, 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 wait. Was that before the parole hearing? No. This was, I guess, so the parole hearing would have been on Monday. This would have been that Sunday. Okay. So the next day, Monday, September 13th, 1999, they called my name. 
And, you know, you say, is that a coincidence? Maybe. I mean, nobody got out of there in seven days. Nobody. I, well, I'd never seen anybody get out of there in seven days, but was that a coincidence that I, I finished what I set out to do on Sunday and then I got out on Monday? Maybe it's a coincidence, but I told you at the beginning of 1999, I wrote in my journal that Jesus said, I'm not going to get you out of prison until you let me deal with what got you in here. And it was, he said he would set me free once I dealt with what I needed to deal with, and I did, and now I'm free. So <laughs> that part wow. has always been just special to me, and it, it may be a coincidence, it may be, but it was... Uh, I never heard that, or... I had no idea that that was my leaving day. Like, I wasn't ready to leave. Like, I hadn't even gave away most of my stuff. <laughs> it was a cra- it was a frantic morning because they only give you, like, an hour to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like, you're making parole. So just real quick, when you say they called your name, was it, like, over a speaker? Or did some, like, guy just come yell your name? I just want to – what did that look like? They would call you over a speaker, and the way it was set up at Donaldson, these are cell blocks, so – they're designed to keep the police safe. So the police are in the cube, and the the police that work in the cube never come in the dorms. And if something happens, they send in, like, backup. But this day, there was an officer there. I can't remember his name. He was, uh, he was like, he might have been in his 30s, but he didn't, he never liked what we were doing in there. Like, because it would, like, piss him off and bother him because he thought we got special privilege. Because we got to a place in the honor dorm where we shared a yard with one block where they had the drug dorm. They would open our doors early in the morning and leave them open till dark. And that didn't happen at that prison. Like, you mm-hmm. were lucky to get an hour of being out in the yard a week. Yeah. So it was like we had a lot of freedoms, but we were we had a lot of accountability, too, because we were there wasn't stuff happening like what's happening in other places. But some of these officers would come from the other side and work on our side when they came through there they would just get pissed off like y'all got y'all act like y'all ain't in prison like Mm -hmm. and he was one of those guys and he didn't like what we were doing and he always gave me a hard time he was always he would come at me i remember one of the things he liked to say uh you know jesus you know you reading that bible jesus said bow down to caesar jesus said bow down i'm caesar bow down you do what i said so I was, I'd be like, okay, whatever. That's not exactly what he said, <laughs> but you're the police, and I respect you. And but don't, I don't know why you got to keep bothering me. But he was the one that called my name that morning and called me over to the cube, and he had a card that was made by another inmate with a, some praying hands and a cross on it, and he said, it said, I've got it somewhere. I can show you. It said. God bless you and keep you and all the, you know, that there's a song out there now. Yeah. That song, the Lord bless you. Yeah. And he looked at me through the hole and he said, I know what you got's real and I know you ain't coming back. And if you do come back, it'll be as a, as, as a volunteer. So happy for you. Do your thing. <laughs> and that just, I started crying. Like I, but from, to get that from him. Right. Cause he was the one, he was always the one antagonizing us and antagonizing me and bothering me. But then you would think you would get that like from the, from the chaplain. Cause you know, they're supposed to be like the, the man of God in yeah. the prison. So Chaplain Lindsay never liked me and I never liked him either. You know, I always called him a mean old Baptist. That's all you are, just mean old 
you know. But the way not that all Baptists are mean. No, not at all. <laughs> but the way he talked to me that day, he was like walk he walked in, like scanned me up and down. He said, Yeah, Jones boy, you still got that look. And you better not dare ask to come back in here for at least two years. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, I know how y'all do your slick velvet tongue, fooling all these free world people get out trying to come back in my prison. You better not dare. I, 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 my rule is at least two years. You have to prove yourself for at least two years, and you still got that look, that convict look. And he was mean. Like, a real encourager, that one, huh? Yeah, he was mean. But I was like, you know what? Today, whatever you say to me, it ain't going to bother me because I'm going to be in a Waffle House. So I don't care, <laughs> care what you're talking about. But it was, uh, it was a crazy day. And I was prepped. I was ready. I had a strategy. You know, Steve helped me with that. I mean, everybody helped me with that. But Steve was like... You know, Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence, he was the main, you know, he was the <laughs> author of it. I had the plan, I had the support, all the pieces was in place. And then I guess we don't need to end this season without me talking about that I had I had the vision for what was next. And that was, if we go back to the last episode, I talked about learning, you know, the people came in there telling us to write stuff down and pray it and confess it and God would bless it and do it and all, and just realizing that this ain't working. This ain't this ain't how you're supposed to do this. And then, but, but I was fascinated with that scripture, and I would always go back and read it because it just said, you know, write the vision, make it plain, and it will surely come to pass. I will, mm-hmm. I'll make it happen. And I got that revelation that it wasn't you write down what you want. You ask God, like, what do you want from me? And then you write that down. And so. The stuff that I wrote down that led to me falling apart had came to pass. Like that was that was real, and it was about two months before I had my parole hearing. I felt like I was supposed to sit. I had a new notebook that I got from my mom in a box, a, a, a just a regular like a notebook that he wanted me to sit with him and spend time with him. And he was going to tell me some stuff to write down. This is two weeks before you got out. No, it was about two months. I picked like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday because those were the slowest days in the honor dorm because we didn't do a lot of classes and stuff on the weekends because it was so, like we had classes all day and at night, Monday through Friday. And then they had like chapel service and stuff like that on Sunday. But Saturday was kind of like our off day. We didn't, uh, we didn't do any of that. So I felt like he was like, I want you to sit. I want you to get your notebook. Come sit with me. Like, Shut yourself out from all the activity, and I got some stuff I want you to write down. And it was the vision for what was next. And I literally wrote for three days. You know, these are the <laughs> these are the things that uh, that I, I have for you. And if you'll just trust me, we can uh, walk these things out. But it ended up being like it it filled up the whole notebook. Wow. And it's still, you know, all the things that are in that notebook are still coming to pass to this day. And it was very uh, detailed. Um, It talked about, you know, you're going to get released from prison. You're going to live in Birmingham. You're going to have favor with your parole officer. And, you know, he or she's going to be helping fulfilling God's plan for your life. It had in there where I would live, where I would not live, like, you're going to live in a good area. You're not going to, just because you're coming out of prison, you're not going to move to, 
you know, where you can get some cheap rent. The Jateau. Well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It was just this right. was no, what I he understand. told me to write. And yeah. I and I just started writing, but then as I was writing, I was like, This is this is a lot right here. Like all this stuff's a little bit too much detailed. Where I would work, what I would do, how I would start my own catering business, how I would start my own restaurant, the way I'd influence people, like a lot of different people, that I would be allowed to come back in prison and help the guys, that I would influence people with my story on TV in newspapers, in magazines, uh, that I would influence a wide range of people, not just felons or people like me, but people from all walks of life, that I would be a pioneer, that I would blaze new trails, that I would find my brother. And that was a, that was a big one for me. I wanted to find my brother. Um, that I would find my biological father, how God's favor would go before me, and I wouldn't have to fear lawsuits or charges or anything else that could come at me after that. And that, you know, we'll talk about that next season, but I've, I've had to deal with that for some years, things, you know, because there's so much out there. Uh, there was a large portion, like seven or eight pages, that were devoted to who my wife was going to be, her, whoop, whoop. <laughs> her characteristics, <laughs> like how, how we fit together, our kids, that I was going to have a son named Judah James, <laughs> My relationships, I don't know why it's making me cry. Um, my relationships, like what my relationship with Jesus would look like, what my family would be like, like how I'd be in with others, my finances, you know, how I would handle that, that God's blessings and favor would always be evident on my life. And then I had not thought about this until I just read this prepping for this podcast, but it is written in black and white in those pages that you'll be part of a great revival that is coming to Birmingham. And I am like, and I didn't even realize that to like, now I am like our church, church of the Highlands. Like it, it has transformed our city and not just our city, but our state. And it's crazy. Just, just crazy stuff that I wrote down. But he said, uh, As I was writing, because I didn't, I was like, I had, my mind was struggling with this. Like, you know, this is, I'm, there's a lot of stuff we write now here. Um, <laughs> um, he said, uh, dream big, James. And while you're dreaming, remember how big I am. And don't ever forget that you belong to me. Like, you belong to me. So you don't have to worry. I'm, I'm going before you. I'll be with you just like I have been, and I have a plan, and I don't know, and then I had a, I don't even know where the quote came from, but it, it, like, that defined the next two decades of my life, that book, and there's still parts of that book that are coming to pass, like, it's crazy, Um, and you know, I have to, you, I let people read that notebook, like, the first year after I was out of prison that didn't believe, like, you wrote this, like, <laughs> no way it was those kind of details, like, you wrote, and I, I didn't, I, I mean, that's a prison notebook, it's got the prison tape on it. Um, Actually, it's kind of neat, because you still have that notebook, I still I've read, read it, it, and it's duct taped together <laughs> on the edges, but it's like the original notebook that you sat in your cell, I guess, yeah. and wrote that back Crazy. in 1999. Yep. And, but the quote is that vision without action is merely a fantasy. So you can have a, God can give you a vision, but if you don't take the steps, it's just a fantasy. But action without vision is simply just the passing of time. So if you're just doing stuff and you don't have any direction, but that vision accompanied by action will change the world. And it changed my world. I mean, 
if I could have, you know, I've been through some hard times then. I was through some hard times on the other side. But if I could look forward to, like, now, like, if I could have saw through to the end of the process that, you know, how God was going to bless my life, my wife, my kids, my family, my church, my community. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. But it's amazing. So you wrote that down. And so now you're. Like, I want to hear about, like, you, like, walking out. Well, you only had an hour to pack your stuff, you said. Yep. And so, what? Well, tell me. I didn't want to take a bunch of stuff with me. So I, I went on, like, a giving away all my stuff campaign. The only thing that I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep uh, my Bible, my Strong's Concordance, my Vines Dictionary, and my <laughs> notebooks. Like, that was the only thing I needed, and I wanted to keep all that. But everything else I gave away. Which would like? What are some things you gave away? Just practical stuff, uh, deodorant, soap, you, the, the lotion that you put the Dakar cologne in. That was in Florida. <laughs> oh, I, we okay. didn't really do uh, the difference. Between, <laughs> difference between Alabama and Florida is like uh, day and night. Like in Alabama, okay. you're just tr- trying to survive. You, <laughs> there was no there, Dakar you, lotion. You don't care about that. <laughs> and I didn't get many visits when I was in Alabama. Either. Yeah, like when I was at Donaldson because my mom had hurt her back and mm-hmm. then. I didn't want people. I just, it was a different, it's a different world. So you gave all your stuff away. I gave all my stuff away. And I was trying to like, you know how I am when I, you know, I want to hurt somebody's feeling. I want to give this, give that, give that. And so yeah. I, was, I was having a panic attack over that. But I gave all my stuff away. And then just leaving that morning, like the way they sent me off, like the huge, it was just like a, it was like a party. Everybody, <laughs> but nobody was mad that I was leaving. Like sometimes when people leave, people get aggravated. But they were like, you know, tears and people crying and praying for me and just just encouraging me and you know and at least one or two or three or four of them said you know you're going you're going ahead of us like you you got to make it like you got to you ain't just doing this for you you're doing it for us so you so please you do good but then <laughs> <Do> good. <laughs> giving away all my stuff and then you know I'm left with my little paper bag I got my little my uh my brown paper bag I got my uh my Bible, my concordance, my Greek dictionary, <laughs> and so all my notebooks. And that's so funny to me. That's all you took with you. <laughs> that's all I needed. I mean, they they didn't have stuff, so they. Right. I mean, I gave away my wife. I gave away everything, pens, everything, yeah. everything I had. You know, just yeah. let's just give it to somebody. But then I had that Christmas. I had got a new pair of Asics, and they were running shoes because I'd start. I learned how to run, mm-hmm. so I was trying to get healthy, and I wanted to give. Cover house, we wore the same size shoes. I wanted to give him my shoes, but I'm like, I can't give you my shoes and walk. I can't go out like barefoot, I, you know. Um, <laughs> so, but he was a chapel runner, so he had a little bit more favor than I get than you know other inmates. Uh-huh. So he asked me if he could walk me to the shift commander's office. That's where you change your clothes. And when I got in there, I just slipped my shoes off and handed them to him, and then he hugged my neck and he was gone. But then it was uh, crazy, you know, like putting on real clothes for the first time in seven years. It just like, and then, wow. well, I didn't even know I didn't my even size. Think about that. Yeah. I didn't even know my size, like, because we our sizes in in prison was you. It was small, medium, large, extra large, XXL. You know, that was yeah. for your pants. That was for your boxers. That was for your uh, little prison shirts that you put on. So I didn't even know. So. There was a little bit of paranoia about trying to figure out, you know, what size pants do I need, what size shirt do I, I can guess, 
But uh, I guess on all that, but just like, and they were good clothes too. Like that World Victory Church people, they put me in the game. Oh, so they like, they have clothes there waiting for you before you actually walk out. Whoever's picking you up can bring you clothes. Oh, okay. If they don't, like if you're one of those unfortunate, and there's a lot of guys that get out of prison don't have anybody. If they get out, they don't have anybody. They have like a box of clothes and you just pick something out of them. It's like thrift store stuff. And then they take you to the bus station and drop you off. Oh, and they gave me a $10 check. <laughs> Why? It's something they do. I don't know if they still do that. I was like, what am I going to do with $10? Here's $10. Good luck. But no, but like the if if I didn't have anybody and I was just like somebody that had no one, mm-hmm. they would have released me from prison, gave me my $10 check, took me to the bus station, <laughs> put check. me on a bus to wherever I want to go to, and then uh, you go figure it out. Wow. And that's, you know, a big part of why a lot of people don't make it. Right. On the other side. But I was for it. I had people. And so the World Victory Church people, they started a campaign of James is getting out of prison. He needs some clothes. And so they had put me in the game with clothes. <laughs> I never saw nothing like that. But then, uh, like, Jimmy and Walter, they got me a bunch of clothes. Ended up, Jimmy and I were the same size, so he gave me, like, all his clothes. And But that day, let's just go back to that day. Yeah. I had a pair of jeans, a nice pair of shoes, and a nice shirt, and it was just crazy to put it on. Yeah. Because I had been wearing prison clothes for the past seven years, and you know how I am about clothes. I love good clothes. <laughs> yes, you but, do. Uh, and I, I don't know if I'm not flashy. I just like put on good clothes. Yeah, you know, no, I know. To feel good, and it makes you feel good about yourself, but putting on the clothes for the first time that year, and then... Or uh, in seven years. In, in seven years, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I say that year. But then my, uh, just walking out of there with my paper sack, my free world clothes on. <laughs> my paper sack. I'm ready to go. <laughs> but then um, uh, Tommy Thomas was picking me up because my mom, you know, she had hurt her back. And yeah. then my Aunt Sue wanted to pick me up. But it was more practical for Tommy to pick me up because he lived in Birmingham and I was going there. So right. I was going. And I had I always had this fantasy, you know. When I finally get out of prison, when I leave, I'm going to kneel down and kiss the ground. And oh, I've seen that on <laughs> movies and stuff. No, I was going to do that. That was my plan. But that morning when, you know, I walked up to the gate and then they just let me go. And so I get into the car with Tommy. Like, he asked me, did I want to stop at the end of the road and do that? And I was like. And kiss the ground? Yeah. Because I said I wanted to. <laughs> okay, he didn't yeah. want me to. I said yeah. I wanted to. But I said, no, let's just. Let's just get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be done. <laughs> Let's just get me out of here. And um, But it was a blur. That, that whole morning, actually that whole day was a blur. It was kind of like, remember when we were getting married, we were, I was so meticulous about planning out the food. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Chef Bob that catered our wedding, he was like, you're not going to eat anything and you're not going to remember the food. And I was like, I'm going to eat and I'm going to remember <laughs> the food. But it was a blur. And yeah. I didn't. You don't really remember. It was kind of like that because it was like going from one thing to the next and it's so fast and everything and it's yeah, just Yeah, and such crazy. like a change like almost instantaneously. <sighs> but I'm free and I'm moving to Birmingham. I'm going to be his man in Birmingham. So you're driving to Birmingham with Tommy Thomas. Crazy day. Well, we have recorded 22 episodes of this and this has been very healing for me, but also I've like picked up pieces of it that have just like encouraged my faith like, you know, Gosh, like, yeah, it's crazy, but good, good, crazy for me, too. Actually, I mean, just it is, 
Neat. I mean, and it really is amazing to me, the your memory and the detail in your memory. And I know you have all those notebooks, and that has been hugely yeah, well, helpful. Um, but it's just neat because I do think one thing that I frustrated with myself about i mean i don't remember things and that's why writing them down is so yeah. powerful because then you remember like oh that happened i forgot mm-hmm. that you know well, there's a lot of stuff i wouldn't remember if it wouldn't have been for the journals right yeah i can um, see that totally i did I, I did a lot of that um we will be doing like a recap of season two like a fact check um i'm also planning on starting a companion podcast for straight out of prison where i go through like like, this is the story, but there was so much that I learned. And, you know, I have a whole curriculum on for guys coming out of prison, just things that, that I learned that we've used across the board. I'm not sure what we're going to name it. If you want to help us with a name, that'd be great. <laughs> I don't want it to be cheesy. But just uh, going through the process of – it would be more like a teaching, though. It wouldn't be like a storytelling. But it goes with this story. Like Yeah, but let's not forget, get ahead of ourselves, season three is coming. Oh, yeah. So season three, <laughs> when he walked into Birmingham, or walked in, drove into Birmingham, I guess, mm-hmm. with with just his paper sack, which only had Bible and <laughs> study guides and notebooks in them. But that's all that you, that's what you started with, period. That's all you that's had what I came to, Birmingham to, with. to yep. your name. That was me. Pretty incredible. But so, I'll tell you, yeah. I'll, I'll, season three is coming. We'll t- I'll tell you about my new home in Birmingham. Transition like, to the free world. Hey, now I'm in the You're free now, world. You're now, what do you call it, a free, <laughs> free world person? Free. I am a free world person, but then I, you know, season three, I'll explain what it's like life on parole. Because I, yeah. was, I was not free, free, but I was not in prison anymore. Right. These, so these were my last But you were free in your mind and heart. Oh yeah, free, free. And I mean, parole wasn't hard for me. I was ready for it. Like whatever, yeah. whatever you need me to do, just let me know. I'll do it because <laughs> my freedom mm. is, you know. Now you had a new appreciation, <laughs> understanding for it, and you still do to this day. Like he tells me, like you need to watch yourself and your freedom. I'm like, listen, okay, yeah, freedom is real. I mean. I, once you've lost it, you you will appreciate it. You will appreciate. <laughs> I it. can see that. But uh, this has been good. Um, I don't. I don't guess there's anything else we want to say about the no season two. Well, I just want to say. I mean, people have said this to you, but just as your wife, I just really appreciate your transparency and vulnerability. And even telling this, I mean, I have. I tell this to people all the time. I feel like I learned something new about you or your story every time we sit down to record, which is really fun and crazy um but i really i mean it's really helped me grow and grow my faith and be filled with hope and oh, I love thank you <laughs> all right we appreciate y'all thank you so much for supporting us um see you soon stay tuned bye guys bye. hey guys thanks so much for tuning in to the straight out of prison podcast for more exclusive content, head over to our website, teamjones.co slash podcast. Yes, you can subscribe by clicking on the Become a Patron button, and that's going to get you access to our For Real Reel, which is very different than the Highlight Not Reel. The highlight reel. Some the very reel. juicy content there. Good stuff. Or you can look us up on Facebook and Instagram, Straight Out of Prison Podcast. Yes, that takes the story to a whole new level where you can see some of the people that James talks about in his story and see some of the places that he's been i've been loving it and you will too prison recipes yeah all the things (laughs) good stuff (laughs) we'll see you soon guys thanks bye bye
Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Written and produced by the Team Jones Company. Yours truly, James and Haley Jones. If you're interested in advertising with us, head over to teamjones.co and click the Join Forces button. We've redesigned our media kit with some exciting new details. If you'd like more information about being a sponsor, email me, Haley, Haley at teamjones.co. It's not .com. The best way to support us is by telling your friends and family about the podcast. Other ways to support us is by liking and sharing the podcast and giving us a review. Well, as long as you think we did good. (laughs) Or you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and more. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys for all your support, all your encouragement, and thank you for being a part of our story. All right, guys, y'all show some love to the sponsors of the Straight Out of Prison podcast. Our friend Keely Brown runs her family-owned HVAC Home and Commercial Services. Is your system ready for the summer? Schedule a system checkup or reprogram your thermostat. They offer residential and commercial, at home or at work. They really do what they say, and they say what they do. Our family serving your family has been their core value since day one. Their founder and owner, Mr. Robert Holland, made sure the foundation of home and commercial services was and is integrity. Now, remember, Haley, we, we catered an event last December where he was a part of the group that we were feeding. But it was interesting to learn that when he was a young man, when he first started in the HVAC business, Mr. Holland actually got in trouble with, for not adding new parts that the people didn't need. And they were like, why didn't you sell the parts? And he was like, because I could fix them. And they were like, no, no, you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. Like, you just got to put new parts. And he was like, but they didn't need new parts. And it bugged him so much that he went out and started his own business. And that's the foundation of home and commercial services. And we can attest to that personally. I mean, they've done so much stuff for us. It's crazy. I love that story. And I think it speaks to, obviously, his integrity and what he's built his business on that integrity. Right now, the most economical service they offer is their annual residential service agreement. For $150, you'll get two annual checkups, and that's for one system. If, if it's an additional system, it's 25% off. Anyways, the annual contract includes priority service, normal rates for after-hour service, 10% discount on any repairs, and a 5% discount on any new installations. It's a good deal especially with the heat of the summer coming. Home and Commercial Services works on all name brands of heating and air conditioning units, gas furnaces, heat pumps, walk-in coolers, and smart thermostats. No job is too big or too small. Call or text Keeley at 205-798-0635. Or you can email at office at Holland. HCS.com. You can look up Holland Home and Commercial Services on Instagram for daily tips and more. Or you can check out their website, HollandHCS.com. We have some amazing friends and supporters of the podcast, Lynn and Debbie Hurst, who own Hurst Towing and Recovery in Fultondale and Hayden, Alabama. They serve the Jefferson, Blunt, and surrounding counties. They tow light and heavy-duty vehicles, and they're always there to help. We wouldn't call anybody else. We would never call anybody else, and that's a fact. Would you like to work for an amazing company that treats their employees like family? The Hearst are hiring. Full and part-time positions. Give them a call today. Hearst Towing is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They've been in our area since January of 1987. They have a heart to serve and they love making an impact in the communities they grew up in. The Hearst definitely make a difference in our world. And they have definitely made a difference in our lives. Dispatchers are always ready to receive calls at 205-631-8697. That is 205-631-TOES. T-O-W-S. <laughs> you, get, you get me every time I with the toes. <laughs> <laughs>
Or check out their website at hearsttowing.com. Now, y'all know James from the podcast, but he also is an amazing cook and private chef. I can attest to that personally. I've had many years of experience in food, just working in, managing, and even owning a couple restaurants. One of his greatest passions is preparing delicious food. You know, if somebody's going through something or through a hard time and you don't know what to do, you can always cook for them. Head over to chefjameskjones.com to join our email list. Once you do that, you can stay updated on everything that we're doing.